All right, well, hello, High Point. It's Pastor Will here, and uh, I want to begin today by saying hello. I'm so glad to, to be back. It's been a while uh, that I've been gone, um, but uh, I'm glad to be back. And, you know, many of you may not know this, but over the past few weeks, I've been out. We were with uh, family the, the first week. Um, and then we were in Florida the second week, and then the third week we got back and were able to spend some time here um, in Memphis before we got situated and got back into the flow of things. And I can tell you, I was telling uh, one of our staff earlier today that after being in Chicago for a few days, it, it really does feel like Memphis is our home already. And Memphis feels more like home uh, than Chicago did ever did. And so we just love uh, High Point. We love being here, and we're so glad to be back. Now, before I jump in today, um, I want to address a couple things right up front. First, uh, I want to take a moment and say thank you. I want to say a public thank you uh, to both Drew and Parker for holding down the fort uh, while I was gone. Um, they both did an incredible job unpacking God's word and addressing some very, very crucial habits. And uh, I'm just so grateful for them as men. I'm grateful for their ministry. I'm grateful for their uh, teaching gift. And uh, what a blessing it is to be a part of a teaching team that is so gifted uh, that I can take time away, several weeks away, and know that the word of God is being preached and the people of God are being edified. So shout out to both Drew and Parker for that. So that's the first thing I wanted to address. The second thing that I want to address today is I wanted to give you an update uh, regarding our regathering plans. Okay, so I want to give you an update regarding our regathering plans. After much prayer, um, actually, real quick, guys, can you turn my my mic down? Uh, that would be really helpful. Thank you so much. It's kind of throwing me off a little bit. Uh, so I wanted to give you an update on this. And after much prayer uh, and processing, uh, we have decided to delay. Um, our regathering date. Um, and the reason for that, there's actually several reasons, and I'll give you those here in a second. But after much prayer, processing, and conversation, uh, we have decided to postpone our regathering date. Now, as many of you know, uh, the plan was to regather on August 2nd, which was next week. Um, but as we, when I got back from vacation, after like I said we were talking and processing and praying, and we just felt that uh, the wisest thing, not necessarily the right thing or the wrong thing, we felt like the wisest thing for us to do uh, was to postpone and to delay our regathering date. Now, there's a few reasons for this, and I, there are several actually, but I'm only going to give you three. Uh, the first reason is because when we initially decided on the August 2nd date, uh, just to kind of give you some context, when the elders and I officially voted on that, it was towards the tail end of June. Now, if you know anything about June, at the end of June, things were getting better. The cases were going down. We were approaching phase three, right? And essentially, we were about to get out of the woods, if you will. Uh, but then July 4th happened. And essentially, from that point on, things have just gotten progressively worse. And so one of the reasons why we had settled on August 2nd is because at that moment, based on the information that we had, we felt like that was the wisest decision to make. Um, but unfortunately, things have changed and pretty drastically uh, since we voted at the end of June. So that's the first reason. A another reason is just because of all the medical information that we are receiving, both externally and internally. Right. As we look uh, around our nation, uh, we can see that there is a lot of 
just things are getting worse. Cases are going up. Phases are being extended. Mandates are being implemented. And so as we were looking around uh, what was going on around our nation and our state and our county in particular, we just felt that it would be wise for us to postpone and to delay. And that's not just medical information out there. Uh, We have on our elder board, a medical professional. And we have many medical professionals who attend High Point who have reached out to us during this season and have given us very valuable feedback. And so a second reason why we have delayed is just because of what we are seeing with safety and medically, right? And the third reason why we are postponing is because of your surveys. One of the things that I said in the video uh, before I left is that we were going to do a survey and that your feedback mattered to us. We wanted to hear from you. And so because of that, uh, uh, we sent out the survey and sure enough, uh, many of you responded. And what we discovered is that the vast majority of you are just not ready to come back yet. And so in light of the fact that we said we were going to listen to you, we're going to listen to you. Right. And uh, so that was another reason why we have decided to delay. So like I said, there's many more, but those are the three primary reasons. And like I said, there was a lot of prayer. There was a lot of processing involved in this. And like I said, this isn't necessarily a right or wrong decision. Like some people are hearing this right now and saying this is wrong. And then there's some people right now, hearing this right now and saying this is right. And what I can tell you is that neither side is right. This isn't right or wrong. This is what we believe is the wisest decision to make in light of the season that we find ourselves in. Okay. So what I want you to know is that our plan is to keep you updated with any updates. We don't really have a return date in mind, but what we are planning to do is to, as an elder board and as a staff, to continually be evaluating and talking and discussing and and figuring out when God wants us to come back. We will keep you posted with any updates, but just so you know, uh, we will not be meeting in person uh, next week. But the other thing I want you to know is that even though we are not regathering yet, uh, it doesn't mean that the church isn't open. Okay, that's why we use the word regathering and not the word reopening, because the church of Jesus Christ never closed. Uh, There is still work to be done. The Great Commission is still still needs to be fulfilled. The kingdom of God still needs to expand. And so what I want you to hear from me is that uh, in the next couple of weeks. So next week, we conclude our Habitology series. And then the following week on August 9th, we are starting a four week series called Recentered, titled Recentered. And this the series is about our mission and our vision. So in that four-week series, I'm going to be rolling out our mission and our vision. And what I'm excited about is that in that, in that series, I'm going to give you opportunities for you and your family to engage, for you and your family to be involved, for you and your family to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this season, okay? So be on the lookout for that. Really excited about that series. But what we're going to do today is we are continuing um, our series, Habitology. And today we are in the second to last week of this series. And for those of you who are joining us today for the first time, uh, what we are doing in this series is we are looking at habits through the lens of scripture. Uh, We are looking at habits through the lens of the gospel. And today, the habit that we are going to be addressing, which I believe is a very important habit for us to address, especially in a season like this, is the habit of prayer. So today we are going to be looking at and unpacking uh, the habit of prayer prayer. Now, here's the thing about the habit of prayer. I would argue that it's easily one of the most important habits that we as believers can have. But at the same time, I would argue that it's one of the habits that we most struggle with. It's one of the habits that we are most tempted to minimize and and not cultivate, right? And I believe that one of the reasons why we struggle with really praying 
and, and cultivating and sustaining that habit of prayer is because we don't really understand what prayer is. And Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, uh, who was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for a long, long time, here's what he says in his commentary about prayer. He says, for most people, few doctrines associated with Christianity are more generally misunderstood than that of true prayer. It is totally misunderstood by non-believers, and it is misunderstood by many who profess the name of Jesus. And so what Dr. Boyce argues is that part of the reason why we struggle with prayer and part of the reason why we don't cultivate and sustain the habit of prayer is because many of us don't really understand what true prayer is. And so my hope today is to look at prayer and really get an understanding of what it is and why we should do it. So our passage today comes to us from Philippians chapter four. So if you have your Bibles, uh, Philippians is in the New Testament and uh, we're gonna be in Philippians chapter four and we're gonna be looking at verses four through seven. Philippians chapter four, verses four through seven. I'm gonna be reading from the ESV and Paul here is writing to a group of Christians who live in the city of Philippi. Here's what it says. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's the word of the Lord. So what we're gonna do today is we are going to look at this passage under two headings. Uh, we are going to begin by looking at how to pray. And then after we look at how to pray, we are going to conclude by looking at why we pray. So how to pray and why we pray. Now in this passage, the apostle Paul tells us how to pray and he informs us that true prayer has three crucial ingredients, okay? The first ingredient, the first component that we need to be aware of is adoration, okay? The first part of true prayer is adoration. The second part, is supplication. And in the third part is appreciation. Now, in light of scripture, I would argue that there's a fourth part, which is confession. Paul here doesn't really get after confession, but I would argue that that's the fourth component of true biblical prayer. And so if you want to read up on what biblical confession looks like, I would recommend you going to Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, David gives us an incredible example of what it looks like to deal with our sin and to lay them out before God and to confess our sins to the Lord. So I believe that there's four adoration, supplication, appreciation, and confession. But Paul here only focuses in on three, okay? So those are the three parts, adoration, supplication, and appreciation. So let's, let's begin today by looking at the first component, the first ingredient to biblical prayer, which is adoration, adoration. Let me reread for you verses four through six. Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So the first component is adoration. And I would argue that there are two indicators in the passage that reveal to us that the first ingredient, the first component of prayer is adoration. The first indicator is that phrase, rejoice in the Lord. And then the second indicator is the Greek word prayer. That word prayer, we'll, we'll, we'll look at both. Let me begin with the word prayer. The word there, prayer, uh, in the Greek, it literally means to speak to God. 
to address God. It means to come to God with a worshipful attitude and mind. Okay, so that word there, prayer, has to do with adoration, has to do with worship. It has to do with approaching God in a proper manner. Okay, but then the phrase that I really want to hone in on, because I think it's a really important phrase, um, is the phrase rejoice. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Now, here's the thing about that phrase, that, that, that phrase, right? In the Greek, it is a present imperative. So what does that mean? Well, the fact that it's an imperative, it means that it's a command. In other words, the Apostle Paul is not suggesting that you rejoice in the Lord. He is commanding it. He is demanding it. And he repeats it twice because in Greek, it's a way to reinforce it. So he says it the first time, knows you're not going to do it. So he says it again. He is commanding you to rejoice in the Lord. But not only is it an imperative, it's also in the present tense. So what does that mean? What it means is that he is, he is expecting you to do it continually. The present tense in Greek is important because it implies that it's an action that has to happen habitually, i.e. habits. It's an action that has to happen continually, okay? So it's a present imperative. It is a command that has to happen again and again and again and again. That's what the word there rejoice means. Now, here's the thing about that word rejoice. Rejoicing or joy, the word rejoice is a derivative of the Greek word joy, right? Joy is very different from happiness. And I think in order for us to understand what joy is, what rejoicing is, we have to explain what it's not. Because a lot of us, we, we like to intermingle the two words, joy and happiness. But in scripturally speaking, those things cannot be further uh, from each other. Okay. Here's why. Because happiness is something that anyone on planet earth can experience. Any non-Christian, uh, any Muslim, any Jew, any atheist, any agnostic, anybody with a breath who can, who's breathing can experience uh, happiness. Why? Because happiness is external. Happiness is circumstantial and happiness is temporary. That's what happiness is. And I don't want you to miss this. Happiness is a feeling. It is an emotion. So it comes and it goes, but it's, it's external, it's circumstantial and it's temporary, right? Joy on the other hand is not a feeling. If anyone has ever told you that joy is an emotion or that joy is a feeling, they haven't read the Bible. Joy is not a feeling. Joy is a fruit. Okay. Galatians chapter five tells us that one of the fruit of the spirit is joy. So joy is not a feeling. It's a fruit. So because it's a fruit and not a feeling, that's why Paul can command it. Because have you ever tried to command someone to feel something? It doesn't work, right? If you tell someone you have to love me, or you have to respect me, or don't be anxious, don't worry. You know, when you tell someone to feel something, it doesn't work. The reason why Paul can command us to rejoice is because joy is not a feeling. Joy is not an emotion. Joy is a, is a state of being. Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul says rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because the only source of true joy is the Lord. So I can say this unequivocally, the only people on planet earth that can experience joy are Christians because true joy is found in the Lord and joy is a fruit of the spirit. It's not a feeling, it's a fruit. So as a result, here's why that's good news. Because then what that means is uh, once you can step into it, your circumstances can't rob your joy. If, if your joy is found in the Lord, then it really doesn't matter what's going on in your life because there's always a reason to rejoice because you have access to the God of the universe. That's why that's so powerful. 
And why a lot of us need to understand that there's a distinction between happiness and joy. And a lot of Christians, unfortunately, we settle for happiness and we act like the world when God wants us to experience joy. But joy can only be found in him. Here's the thing, guys. This is really important. I don't want you to miss this. The problem is when we disconnect joy from the Lord, when we treat joy like a feeling and not a fruit, then what a lot of Christians do, what a lot of older Christians do with younger Christians is we try to force joy on them. We try to force them to be joyful. But the problem is if joy is not a fruit and it's being forced, then it's not really a fruit, it's a front. Say it again. If you are a Christian here today and what you are displaying is fake joy, that's not a fruit, that's a front. And and, and in our small group, in our church at home group, uh, we were in our church at home group a few weeks ago and uh, Pastor Tyler, uh, our, one of our worship pastors here, he, he, he used this illustration from this person he had read or heard. And it was such a good illustration. He said that, I don't even remember what it was connected to, but I think it relates to this. He says that one of the mistakes that we make in Christianity is that we teach people the dance moves, but we never give them the music. And, and a, a lot of Christians, you were raised up in, in a tradition where you were told to be joyful i.e. the dance moves, but never told that joy is in the Lord, i.e. the music. And so we have Christians who are doing all the right choreography, but aren't listening to the right music. And so that's why, because of that, your joy is a front and not a fruit. Okay. That's why that's so important. So essentially the reason why we want to begin with adoration that remember that word prayer has to do with adoration. The word rejoicing in the Lord has to do with adoration. The reason why we want to begin our prayer with adoring God, with worshiping God, with, with looking to God and putting him where he belongs is because according to Dr. Tim Keller, prayer is the only time we treat God like he's God. Think about it. The only time we treat God like he's God, and I would say that happens in worship as well because adoration helps us do this. But, but prayer, according to Keller, is really in the, probably the greatest example of when we treat God like he's God. And guys, that's why we struggle so much with prayer because the world is convincing you that you are God. Your flesh is convincing you that you are the God of your life. So the reason why you struggle with prayer is because when you pray, you have to admit that you're not God. And that's why prayer is hard. That's why we don't pray. Because if it's the only time we treat God like he's God, then that's why we don't want to do it. See, what, what prayer does is prayer puts things in their proper perspective. Prayer puts things in proper perspective. Here's what happens when we don't pray, okay? And I can tell you this from experience. Guys, this season has been rocking me. All right. I have had anxiety. I have had worry. I've had fears. I, I, I don't know what's left and right. I don't know what's right and wrong. And I've experienced, I have experienced a lot of worry and anxiety. And we're going to talk about that more here in a second. But one of the things that I've realized is that I am more likely to put, wrong, put things in the wrong proportions, right? To have a disproportionate view of things when I'm not praying. But all of a sudden, when I pray, what prayer does is it, put things, it puts things back in its proper perspective. It's like the solar system, right? The only way the solar system works is if the sun is in the middle. If the sun's in the middle, then everything rotates the way it's supposed to. But if I were to put Mars in the middle, or if I were to put Earth in the middle, it wouldn't have the gravitational pull to carry everything else. And so for me, I have experienced a lot of this worry and anxiety. And what I've seen for me is that when I pray, when I really take time to worship God, 
not necessarily even talk about anything that I'm struggling with, but just really take time to adore God, to worship him, to put him back where he belongs. All of a sudden it puts things back in perspective. Once I put God where he belongs, then all of a sudden I go back to where I belong and all my problems go back to where they belong. It gives me a proper perspective. I, I get to magnify God. And as I magnify God, I minimize myself and my problems. That, that's why that's so important. That's why that's so crucial. And so what I've realized is that the reason why adoration is so important is not because when I pray, the situation or the circumstances change, but because I change. I change. And that's crucial. Listen, this season hasn't changed at all. But I've changed a ton because prayer changes you. That's why uh, the Danish philosopher and theologian, uh, Dr. Soren Kierkegaard, here's what he said. He said, prayer does not change God, but it changes him who prays. I would argue that the more your prayer life is filled with adoration and worship, the more you will not change God, prayer will change you. What's funny because a lot of us, we adore God and we worship God in prayer because we know we're about to ask him for something. And so we would think if we worship him enough at the front end, we'll be able to trick him with a bait and switch. And so we go, we, we adore in order to change God. And what source, what, 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 Dr., what Kierkegaard is saying is, no, no, when you adore, you don't change God. It changes you. And that's what you really need. Okay. Here's the thing about adoration. Adoration allows you to treat prayer, and this is a, a quote from uh, Carrie Tamboon, but the, 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 to treat prayer like the steering wheel of your life, not the spare tire of your life. A lot of us, we treat prayer not like the steering wheel, but the spare tire. I, I will go to prayer when the, the tire busts and I, and I need help. I will break glass in case of emergency, but until then, I got this. So the question is, how do you treat prayer? Is it the steering wheel? Or is it the spare tire? That will tell you on how much you're actually adoring God. And you know, one of the words that was fascinating to me that I, I didn't really understand until I studied this passage is the word reasonable. In verse five, Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now that, I'm gonna come up, I'm gonna go to that word twice today because this word has just so much meaning to it. It's probably the most important word uh, in the entire passage. And I know I'm over speaking, but you'll see why in a second. One of the meanings of that word reasonable, here, here's the struggle with that word reasonable. There's, there's no English word that can fully capture what that word means in Greek. But one of the meanings of that word reasonable is it means to have a suitable response, to have an appropriate response. So, so think about this, think about this. Paul says that the more you rejoice in the Lord, the more you pray to the Lord, the more you adore the Lord, you start to become reasonable. You start to have a suitable response. You start to have an appropriate reaction to the things around you. It puts things in their proper perspective, okay? So, so I came across a quote um, that really impacted me a ton. It was from uh, John Newton, the, the famous hymn writer, John Newton. He said this, he said, when we take time to adore God and we take time to put God where he belongs, it puts things in proper perspective. And all of a sudden he says, listen to this, the worst times become bearable and the best times become leavable. I'm gonna say that again, because I know for a fact somebody missed that, okay? When you adore God, 
When you worship God in prayer, when you have a proper view of God and as a result, a proper view of yourself and your circumstances, all of a sudden, the worst times become bearable and the best times become leavable. But when you're not praying, neither of those realities are true. When you're not praying, the worst times are not bearable. They're unbearable. And when you're not praying, the best times are not leavable because you're probably worshiping something in that season, not God. Okay, so the first layer, the first ingredient to gospel prayer, to the habit of prayer is adoration. The the second ingredient, the second component is supplication. Supplication. Look what it says uh, in verse six. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So the, the, the second uh, component, the second ingredient is supplication. Now, now there's two words in, the, in this section that reveal to us that the second component is supplication. The first word that indicates that is the word supplication. Go figure, it's there in the text. But then the, the second word is the word request. Both of those words carry the idea of you going before God and asking for something, begging for something, making a request, making your request known to God and saying, God, please do something about my situation, right? Both supplication and the word request carry that idea, that that word picture, okay? So the second component is supplication. And I would argue that out of the three components that we're gonna be looking at today, this is the one that we are best at. Man, we are awesome, at making supplications to the Lord. I would argue that for many of us, the majority of our prayer life is supplication. The majority of our prayer life is us going to God and telling him what we need. And the reason why is because American Christianity is a consumer Christianity. And so we treat God like a cosmic Amazon and we go online and we make our requests. We, we have a wish list. Well, I'll get, I'll get to that at some point, but this is what I need right now. And we order it. And almost always that order comes with some sort of price. So we try to do some religious things in order to pay the price for the good thing that we want God to do. And then we, re, then we expect next day shipping. That's, that's how we approach God. We are awesome at supplication. Heck, if supplication wasn't the only thing, if supplication was the only thing we were talking about, many of you could preach this sermon for me because we are beasts when it comes to asking for stuff. But here's the thing. It's not the only component and it comes after adoration because I would argue that if you do the job that's needed when it comes to adoration, it's going to change your supplication. If you adore God and put God in his proper place and put you in your proper place and put your circumstances in the proper place, what you ask for after that is going to be very, very different. Now, one of the things that Paul says we can take to the Lord, we can bring to the Lord is our anxiety. He he commands us, again, another command, a present imperative, just like rejoice in the Lord. He says, do not be anxious about anything. In other words, Paul says, do not be anxious all the time, habitually, continually, do not be anxious. That seems like such an unrealistic command. What do you mean do not be anxious? I'm anxious all the time. I can tell you, like I said, I, I, I have anxiety attacks all the time, I'm constantly dealing with what do I do here? What do I do there? And, what, and High Point, being the pastor of High Point hasn't helped that, okay? It's made things worse, I can tell you that. And this season hasn't helped that either. So, so how, how, how can Paul command us to not be anxious. Well, here's the thing. The first part, do not be anxious, is impossible unless you read the second part. 
which is do not be anxious about anything. Instead, pray about everything. And we'll get to that in a second. But, but I, wanna, I wanna drill down on this word anxiety because this, this word anxiety is very interesting to me in the Greek. The, the Greek word there is marimna, is marimna. And here's what it means. The word anxiety in Greek, it means to overcare, to be overly concerned. So get this. The Bible doesn't say you shouldn't care about stuff. The Bible says you can't overcare. The Bible says you can't, it's not that you can't be concerned about stuff, but you can't be overly concerned. Does that make sense? It, because a lot of people are like, well, if you don't want me to be anxious, then I'm just not going to care and not, not care at all. No, no, that's, that's the opposite extreme, right? It's not apathy that you're being called to do. You are to care, but not overcare. You are to be concerned, but not overly concerned. Here's what's interesting. The, the, the word picture there for the word anxiety, it literally means to be torn apart in several pieces, the, the word there, it means to be pulled in many different directions. It, it, the, the word picture there is of a mind that's divided up with many thoughts. So that's the word picture there, to, to be torn, to be pulled, to have divided thoughts. Actually, in the Old English, the word anxiety, which is based on the Greek word, in the Old English, the word anxiety meant to be strangled. That, that to be anxious means to feel like you're being strangled by your circumstances. You're, you're being strangled by your fears and by your worries, okay? So think about it. It means to overcare, to be overly concerned. And it means, so think about it, when you're careful, it's what anxiety is. It's to be full of cares, right? That's what that's what it is. Anxiety is to be full of cares. It's to have a divided mind, to be torn, to be pulled in many different directions. And I would argue that the best example of this comes to us from Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, you have Jesus at Mary and Martha's house. And, and, and Mary, uh, who is probably the, the uh, sorry, Martha, who's probably the older sister, is doing all this work at the house. Mary, the younger sister, we are told, is sitting at the feet of Jesus, just listening to him, right? And so there's a party and people are coming and there's, there's stuff to be done. And Martha's just running around, doing work, doing work, doing work, getting stuff ready. And Mary is just sitting at the feet of Jesus, focused on him and him alone. And what does Jesus say to him, to her? Well, Jesus only talks to her because she screams at him. Essentially, he goes, Jesus, what are you doing? Or do you not see my lazy sister? She's not doing anything. And I'm the one doing all the work. Jesus says something to her and he uses the same Greek word that's here in this passage, anxiety, uh, marimna. He says, Martha, you are anxious about many things. See, see the, the, the divided mind? Ang Martha, you have a lot of different things on your mind. You're being torn. You're being pulled. Your mind is divided. Your sister, on the other hand, is focused on one thing. So, so that just proves that the definition of the Greek word is to be divided because he, he, Jesus says that the opposite of being anxious is being single-minded. The more single-minded I am, the more I rejoice in the Lord, the more I worship the Lord, the more I put him where he belongs, the more single-minded I am, the, the more uh, protected I am from anxiety. Because if anxiety means to have divided thoughts, then the only solution is to be single-minded and to be focused on Jesus alone. So, so the question for you this, today is this, uh, how single-minded are you today? How many thoughts do you have running through your head? Do you feel like you're being torn apart? Do you feel like you're being pulled in several different directions? Do you feel like your mind is divided? Well, the opposite of anxiety is single-mindedness. The more the Lord is your only focus and your only, it, Lord has your attention, your, your, your mind's attention and your heart's affection, 
the less anxiety has a chance to creep into your life. But, but here's the reality, right? Many of us, we, we don't go to God. When we feel anxiety, we don't go to God. We go to a lot of other places, but we don't go to God. Some of us, we, we go to food and we anxiously eat. Some of us, we go to porn. Uh, some of us, we go to gambling. Some of us, we go to YouTube. Some of us, we go to Facebook or Instagram, right? Some of us go to our careers. But we, we go to all these different places because we don't want to deal with our anxiety. But we never think about going to God. We try everything else but God. My thing is, I hope that you would give God just as much of a chance as you've given ice cream or social media or YouTube or video games or porn. Just, just give him an equal shot. Just try it. Take your anxieties and go to him instead of to those places. That's why that's so important. I, I just uh, finished a book this week uh, called Emotional Agility. It, it's a secular book and it's, it's okay. It's okay. Here's the thing about secular books. Secular books are really, really great at describing the problem, but they're terrible at providing a solution because they don't have Jesus, right? So that's essentially what that book is. It's really great at describing the problem and terrible at providing a solution. But in the book, Emotional Agility, here's what the author argues. He, he's talking about emotional awareness and he says that when bad emotions come up, okay, when negative emotions come up, there's, there's nothing wrong with the emotions in themselves, he says. What's wrong is how we react to them. And so we make something that isn't that bad infinitely worse. He says that there's two responses. The first response when negative emotions comes up is we suppress the negative emotion, which that's what I do. I am a suppressor all day, every day. You can ask my wife. I, I was suppressing the first nine months of being here at High Point. And then right around the third week of my vacation, it, the, the dam broke, okay? And all of a sudden, all these emotions that I hadn't dealt with came out. And it, was, it was a pretty awkward situation, I can tell you that, okay? So, so, so the first way to respond to negative emotions is to suppress. That's one extreme. The other extreme is not to suppress, but to submit to them. And so there's people who just submit to every emotion that comes. Every emotion. And if you remember when we were talking about and when we looked at the discernment passage, it's like our minds are a conveyor belt. We can't control what comes down that conveyor belt, but we can't control what we inspect and push on. But what people who submit to every emotion do is they just, if they're angry, then they just submit to being angry. If they're, if they're discouraged, they just submit to being discouraged. And they're just emotional roller coasters. They're happy one second and they're depressed the next second. And they're just up and they're down and they're up and they're down. So he says we can either suppress it and that's not right. Or we could submit to every negative emotion. And that's also not right. One person, the person who suppresses minimizes negative emotions. And then the person who submits magnifies them. Here's what I would argue. He doesn't say this third part because he's not, a, he doesn't understand scripture, but uh, here's what I would say. Instead of suppressing and submitting, what we should do instead is we should surrender them to God. So we shouldn't suppress our emotion, our anxiety in this case. We shouldn't suppress it. We shouldn't submit to it. We should surrender it to the Lord. That, according to this passage, is the only proper biblical response, okay? So essentially, what Paul's arguing, and, and, I, know, and I know it almost seems simplistic, but that's what he's saying. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer. So here's what he's saying. He says, do not be anxious about anything, 
but pray about everything. So get this. You know how much I love my, the, my two, to the two the degree statements, okay? To the degree that you pray about everything, to that same degree, you won't be anxious about anything. But if you're not praying, don't be surprised that you're anxious because Paul says that the answer to anxiety, at least spiritual anxiety, I know some of you struggle with physical or chemical anxiety. That's another thing. But at least spiritual anxiety, the, the, the answer to spiritual, emotional anxiety is prayer. That's the only prescription that the Bible gives. To the degree that you pray about everything, to that same degree, you will not be anxious about anything. Arthur, author Max uh, Lakato, here's what he says in his book on worry. He says, no one can pray and worry at the same time. You can't do it. No one can pray and worry at the same time. Because by you praying, you are taking what you are worried about and you are giving it to God. So you can't pray and worry at the same time. So if you're worried still, you haven't prayed enough. What are you talking about? I've been praying. No, no, no. You haven't prayed enough. Either you haven't adored enough or you haven't done enough supplication or enough uh, confession or you just haven't prayed enough. It's, 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 I hate to be that simplistic, but that's what the Bible says, okay? We have to go to God in prayer. And here's the thing, here's the thing. Here's why uh, uh, adoration is so important. I'm, I'm, con I'm connecting adoration and supplication, okay? Here's why it's so important. Uh, Oswald Chambers, uh, who's the famous devotional writer, he, here's what he says. He says that when we are anxious, the reason why we are anxious is because at the, at the root of it, we don't trust God. We don't trust that God is good enough. We don't trust that God is loving enough. We don't trust that God cares enough. We don't trust that God is wise enough. And deep down at the root of our anxiety, the reason why we are anxious is because we don't think God is enough. So here's what he says. This is a direct quote from him. He says that anxiety is a form of unconscious blasphemy. Anxiety is unconscious blasphemy because you are saying God to God, I don't think you are enough. And so as a result, I'm going to sit on your throne. I'm going to wear your crown. I'm going to take your cares because I'm the God of this little universe, not you. Okay. And actually it's not just Oswald Chambers that makes the connection between anxiety and trust in the old Testament in Isaiah 26 verse three, look what Isaiah says. And what I want you to see here is that in parentheses, I have provided what it, what it means in the Hebrew so that you can get a full understanding of what he's saying here, okay? He says this. Let me read the whole verse and then I'll, I'll explain each word. So you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. But the word there, you keep him in perfect peace, the word there, peace, means prosperity, tranquility, and complete. So get this. In scripture, peace is not the absence of conflict. That's what we think peace is, right? A lot of us just think that peace is the absence of conflict. There's no conflict, there must be peace. No, no. In scripture, the definition of peace, if peace is not the absence of conflict, it is the presence of prosperity. It is the presence of welfare, tranquility. The, the word picture there is of a, of a body of water that is undisturbed. That's what peace is, right? So he says, you keep him in perfect peace, prosperity, tranquility, complete, whose mind, thinking and reasoning, is stayed. I love that word stayed in Hebrew because it means rests, leans, relies. So the person who experiences perfect peace is the person whose mind rests, leans, and relies on God. Because there's the connection to trust. He trusts in you. The word there, trust, means to confide and to believe. 
So just like Oswald Chamber, uh, Isaiah 26, 3 shows us that there's a connection between our anxiety and our trust in God. There's a direct correlation between both. And I'm going to say something here that's going to be a little controversial, okay? I would argue, and again, I'm not talking about chemical anxiety, but I would argue that anxiety is a form of pride. Anxiety is a form of anxiety. It's a form of arrogance. Not only because you're not trusting God, but it's actually because you're trying to replace him. Think about it. If you were to write out the word anxiety on a piece of paper, what's the letter right in the middle of it? I. Same thing with the word pride. What's the letter right in the middle of the word pride? I. It takes a lot of pride to be an anxious person. It's a sign of pride when you are overly anxious. And that's not just me saying it. In, in, in 1 Peter, Peter says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. So he tells us to humble ourselves. And then he tells us this, how to do it. He says, by casting your cares on him because he cares for you. So get this. If you don't cast your cares on God, then you're not humbling yourself. If you try to carry your own cares, you're being prideful. You're being arrogant. Anxious people are very self-centered people. They're very self-absorbed people because everything in their life revolves around them. Everything happens, of course. It always comes back to them. But again, remember I said I was gonna go back to that word reasonable one more time. The word reasonable is so beautiful to me because not only does it mean suitable or appropriate, which which, which, which we said last time, but it also can mean, get this, it means to be gracious or to be selfless. So think about it. When, when you experience God's grace, you become gracious. Go figure. And, and, and you become selfless. And here's why that's important. Because he, he, to be gracious, to be selfless, you can't be thinking about yourself. You, to, by definition, to be selfless means that you're focused on other people. But when you're anxious, you can't focus on other people. Even if you're worried about other people, it seems like you're worried about other people, but really you're just worried about yourself. And so, 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 so what happens is when you, when you adore God and you bring your supplications to him, what starts to happen is you become reasonable, you become gracious, you become selfless, which makes sense because if you remember what Parker said last week, which I think was so well said, he said the reason why so many of us struggle with humility and we're so focused on pride and, and, and self-absorption uh, uh, is because we think that if people don't pay attention to us, if people don't see us, if people don't hear us, if people don't applaud us, then we don't exist or we're less than. But what prayer does is it reminds us, wait, I'm already seen. I'm already heard. I'm already loved. I'm already accepted. So because I have those needs met, now I can be gracious. Now I can be selfless because I don't need, I'm not using those people to serve me. I can serve those people for their good. Guys, don't miss that. Please don't miss that. I don't know if anyone's ever told you that, but anxiety is pride. It is unconscious blasphemy. I heard a story. Um, it's not a true story, but it's a helpful one. Um, and this will be the last thing I say before I move on to appreciation. There was a story told about a woman uh, who was struggling with anxiety, but she was struggling with a very specific form of anxiety. Uh, she was struggling, get this, she was struggling with and, and fearful of at night when she would go to bed, she would be fearful that a thief was gonna break into her house and rob the house. And every night she would struggle falling asleep and all this anxiety would just overwhelm her. All this fear would just overwhelm her. And every night, day after day, month after month, uh, year after year, that was her struggle every night, right? Then after 10 years, a thief finally broke in. 
And story goes, again, not a true story, but the husband goes downstairs, finds the thief, cats, catches him in the act. And he says, tells the thief, hey, before you leave, uh, can you go upstairs and say hello to my wife? She's been expecting you for 10 years. <laughs> here's the thing. Again, not a true story. But here, here's the thing. That thief only robbed from her once. That anxiety robbed from her for 10 years. The thief could only steal from her once, but anxiety robbed from her, robbed time from her, sleep from her, energy from her for an entire decade because that's what anxiety does. So we've looked at adoration. We've looked at supplication. And the last component, the last part is appreciation. Appreciation. Let me go ahead and reread verse six. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, everyone say with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So uh, the third and final component and part to biblical prayer is thanksgiving. The, the, the Greek word there, thanksgiving, it means to uh, have a spirit of gratitude because of all the blessings and benefits that God has given you. And that can be past blessings and benefits. That can be present blessing and benefits. It can be future blessing and benefits. But, but we are to approach God with a spirit of gratitude. And get what, get, don't miss what Paul says. Paul says that all of our prayer should be accompanied by thanksgiving. All of our prayer. Now, some of you may be thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean? All of my prayer should be accompanied with thanksgiving. What if I'm asking God for something? Why in the world would I thank God if he, if he hadn't answered my prayer yet? That doesn't make any sense. What, what am I thanking him for if he hasn't answered my prayer yet? Well, well, here's the thing. The reason why we can be thankful, even though God hasn't answered your prayer yet, regardless of what you are praying for, is because in light of Romans chapter eight, we are told in verse 28 that God works all things for the good of those who love him. So here's what that means. Even when you don't know what God's hand is doing, you can trust his heart, okay? Because God loves you. And so you can say thank you ahead of time because even if God doesn't give you what you're asking for, God would do, God does what you would do if you knew everything he knew. But you don't know everything he knows. And so you can say thank you, say, God, I want this, but I'm gonna thank you ahead of time because even if, because if you don't give me that, it's because you are working all things for the good of those who love you. And so I can trust I can say thank you in advance because I'm okay with whatever you give me. That's crucial. That's crucial. That's why uh, John Newton, I'm quoting John Newton again. Here's what he says. He says, everything is necessary that God sends our way. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. I've read that quote in the past, but it just, I had to read it again here. Because everything is necessary that God gives you. And nothing that he withholds is necessary. In light of Romans 8, that's true. And so we can thank God ahead of time because we know that God is working all things for the good of those who love him. So that's how to pray. Like I said, the last one is confession, but Paul doesn't bring this one up. Uh, go to uh, Psalm 51 for that. But we see that the three components are adoration, supplication, and then finally, uh, the last one is appreciation. So now that we've looked at how to pray, I want to conclude today by looking at why we pray. Why should we pray? Well, look what Paul says in verse seven. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, 
will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul here, you might not even see it, but he actually gives us three reasons for why we should pray, okay? The first reason why we should pray is because in the gospel, we have a peace that transcends. The second reason why we should pray is because in the gospel, we have a peace that defends. And the third reason why we should pray is because in the gospel, we have a peace that descends. Transcends, defends, and descends, all right? So let's begin with the first one. The first reason why we should pray, according to the Apostle Paul, is because in the gospel, we have a peace that transcends. That's what he says there when he says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. God's peace transcends all understanding. Uh, over the, the, my vacation, I, I read through, a, I'm reading through a book on business. And in the book, it's a second year book, uh, the author says that as a business consultant, his job is to go and consult different companies. He says one of the things that he saw during the 2009 recession is that when he showed up on the scene, many of these companies were experiencing this phenomenon called learned helplessness. And here's what this was. He said that from the beginning, from the day we were born, we have been taught that there is a cause and effect to everything. So if I want to be a good student, I got to put in the work. If I want to make money, I got to put in the work, right? If I want to get in shape, I got to put in the work. So in our minds, input results in output. But he says that there are certain seasons that we find ourselves in where that's not true. You can put all the input that you want and the output doesn't come out the way you expect it. And he says that when we're in a season like that long enough, what starts to happen in the culture is people start to experience a learned helplessness, a learned helplessness, okay? So, so here's why that's important. He said that in 2009, when the recession happened, he started seeing this learned helplessness just be pervasive around all the different companies he was working in because these people were like, what's the point? Why even work? Why even put in the effort? Because no matter what we do, the economy continues to tank. I would argue that the season that we find ourselves in is one of those seasons. This, this pandemic season, this quarantine season, this coronavirus season, with all the political and racial turmoil that we find ourselves in, one of the things that we can fall into if we are not careful is we can fall into to a learned helplessness. We can literally just give up and say, what's the point? Like, why, why do it? But here's what's dangerous about that. There are a lot of Christians right now who are convinced that they are experiencing God's peace, but really what they have is not hope. They have hopelessness. They have helplessness. So what looks like peace is actually a counterfeit version of peace. What you are experiencing is not peace. What you are experiencing is apathy and cynicism. Okay, so you are apathetic and you are cynical and you are convinced that you are peaceful because you don't care anymore. But that's not peace. That's not what God is telling us to do here. You are not being hopeful. You're being hopeless and you're acting no different from the world if this is how you are responding. Don't miss that, guys. We, we in, 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 the, 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 in the gospel, we have a peace that transcends our understanding and praise be to God for that. Because there's times where our understanding is not enough. There's, there's times where our logic is not enough. There's times where our, our, our thoughts are not enough, where our answers are not enough, our solution are not enough. And in the gospel, we have a peace, the Greek word therefore surpass. We have a peace that supersedes, that outranks, that overpowers our answers, our rationale, our solution, and our effort. Praise be to God that in the gospel, we have a peace that surpasses and transcends our understanding. So the first reason why we should pray is because in the gospel, we have a peace that transcends. The second reason why we should pray is because in the gospel, we have a peace that defends. 
that defends. How do we know? Well, the next thing he says, he says, uh, which surpasses all understanding and will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I, I love that because the Greek word there for guard is a very vivid word in the Greek. The, the word picture there is of a, a, an army of soldiers surrounding a city. But get this, they're surrounding the city not to attack the city. They're surrounding the city to protect the city. So they're not facing in at the city. They're facing out, seeing, looking for any potential enemies or any potential invasion. Isn't that beautiful? So what we're told is that when we pray and when we approach God through Jesus in the gospel, we have a peace that protects us. We have a peace that defends us. God provides an army of soldiers and it surrounds our city and it protects us from worry and anxiety and fear and the enemy and the flesh and the world. That's what we have. We have a peace that defends us. And one of the things that I found just incredible this week is that I love that Paul's using that mental image here, that, that image of, of, of a garrison and of a, a, a protected city. Because the, the city of Philippi, out of all the cities that Paul wrote to, was the city that would most understand that concept. And here's why. Because of how strategic the location of Philippi was, it was one of the strategic strongholds of the Romans. The Romans knew that in order to protect their empire, they had to have a lot of soldiers and a garrison in the city of Philippi in order to protect their, 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 their business dealings in that region. They knew that if they lost Philippi, they would lose a very strategic location. So get this. I love this. Paul is talking to a city that has the most powerful force in the known world residing there. And those Philippians knew they can go to bed at night and they knew that Philippi was not going to be overrun. Because the Romans were there, the Philippians knew that everything was going to be okay. Well, well, think about how much more should we sleep at night? When we understand that we don't have the Roman Empire, we have the God of the universe who protects us, who defends us, who fights for us, who's villaging for us. Come on, church. Man, if that doesn't make you sleep at night, you ain't praying right. You don't get the gospel. Because in the gospel, we have a peace that defends us. That's why Paul Bunyan, in his, favorite, in his famous novel, uh, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, he talks about the town, and the name of the town, get this, is the town of man's soul. The town of man's soul. And who is the person, the deputy, that protects the town of man's soul? In the book, the deputy is named Mr. God's Peace. The deputy that protects man, the, the town of man's soul is Mr. God's Peace. Isn't that beautiful? That's what we have. So, so the first reason why we, why we, we pray uh, is because we have a peace that uh, 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 transcends. The second reason is because we have a peace that defends. But the third reason, I would argue the greatest reason why we pray is because we have a peace that descends. And here's what I mean by that. One of the things that we discover when we do a, a biblical study of the word peace one of the things that we discover when we zoom out of Philippians 4 and look at peace throughout the entirety of scripture is that God's peace is not ultimately an emotion or a feeling or a place or a state of being. God's peace is a person and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that Paul says here in the passage that we can read right past, but to anyone from the Old Testament, anyone who was a Jew from the Old Testament would have been shocked by is when Paul says here, he says, the Lord is at hand. You can read right past that. But here's what it means. The the Lord is at hand. It means that God is close both in time and in space. And even more so in the Greek, it means that God is accessible to us. 
God is accessible. Listen, that can only be said in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, nobody was saying that the Lord is accessible because in the Old Testament, that wasn't the case. God was not accessible. In order for you to get anywhere near God, there would have to be animal sacrifices. And even still, if you were a woman, you could only go so far. If you were a Gentile, you could only go so far. If you were a Jewish man, you could only go so far. If you were a priest, you could only go so far. God was not accessible in the Old Testament. So why can Paul say that God is accessible? Why can Paul say that God is near? Why can Paul say that God is intimate? Well, the reason why Paul can say that is because of the Lord Jesus Christ, because Jesus came to do what no sacrifice in the Old Testament could do. Listen, the reason why the Jews never experienced the peace of God is because they didn't have peace with God. Peace of God is a fruit. Peace with God is the root. So since they never had peace with God, they couldn't have the peace of God. Jesus came down and the peace of God descended onto earth. He came near. He he approached us. He he made himself accessible. So here's what's beautiful about the gospel. Peace is not something that you find. Peace is something that finds you. Peace is not something you find. Peace is someone who finds you. Before the peace of God can dwell in your heart, the peace of God had to dwell in the flesh, in the world. That's what Jesus Christ came to do. Jesus Christ, in Jesus, get this, in Jesus, the abstract principle of God's peace became a concrete person. Jesus came to deal with our real issue. Our real issue is not not that we don't have the peace of God. The real issue is we didn't have peace with God. Jesus came to deal with the root, which was peace with God, Romans 5, so that we can have the fruit which is the peace of God, Philippians 4. Come on. At the cross, Jesus Christ temporarily lost the peace of God and the peace with God. At the cross, Jesus temporarily lost both of those so that by faith in him, we might eternally gain both. When you understand that, it kills your anxiety at its root. Because think about it. Sometimes the reason why we're anxious is because we're scared that God's not good. Well, in light of the gospel, in light of the cross, that's not true. Sometimes we feel we're anxious and we're struggling. We're like, well, it must be that God's punishing me. Well, in light of the gospel, in light of the cross, he already punished Jesus, so that's not true. Or it might be that God doesn't care for me. Uh, in light of the gospel, that's not true. So all of a sudden, your deepest fears that cause the deepest anxieties are dealt with in the gospel. Listen, if you're sitting here today, and you want a relationship like this. You, you've never prayed like this. You've never heard any of this. You're like, wait, what the heck? This is not what I grew up listening to. Well, I want you to know that the only way you can experience this peace of God is if you have peace with God. And Jesus came to give you peace with God. When you place your faith in him, the Holy Spirit resides in you and starts to produce the peace of God, which is also a fruit of the spirit, a peace, the peace of God in your life. This is going to seem controversial what I'm saying, but I would argue in light of scripture, the only people that can really pray to the God of this universe are Christians. Why? Because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You cannot approach the father except through me. So there's so many people praying all throughout the known world. But the reality is the only people that are actually getting to God are the people who come through Jesus, who is the only mediator between God and man. So if you've never prayed like this, if you've never experienced peace like this, I pray that today would be the day that you place your faith in Jesus. All it takes is for you to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord 
to believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. That's all it takes. Pause the stream. Do it right now. Go before God. I, I was 18 years old. I was a senior in high school when I did it. And I can tell you, it changed my life. My life has never been the same since. I pray that today would be that day for you. If that's you, we would love for you to text the word high point to the number 97000. Last thing I would say is if in light of this passage, I would really just ask for you guys to pray for me. Uh, this is a tough season to lead. And uh, it would seem, it would be prideful for me to say that I have it figured out because I don't. Um, and I'm more convinced than ever that I need your prayers. So be praying for me, uh, be praying for our elders, be praying for wisdom, be praying for humility, be praying for unity. Um, but we, we really covet your prayers in this season because uh, we really want to, like I said, not do the right thing or the wrong thing. We want to do the wise thing. This isn't a black or white season. This is a gray season. And so pray for wisdom if you can. Because I, honestly, like I said earlier, I can't think of a habit that's more important in a season like this than the habit of prayer. So let's pray. Father God, thank you again for today. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness. And thank you for the gospel. The gospel kills our anxiety at its root for many reasons. So Lord, I pray for the people here who feel anxious, whatever they're anxious about. I pray even in the church at home groups that, that at the end, they would take time to pray for each other's anxieties and pray for each other's worries and cares. Thank you that we don't have to do this alone, but we get to do this together. Thank you, Jesus, that in the gospel, we have a peace that transcends, a peace that defends, and ultimately a peace that descends and died for us at the cross. Thank you that you are the, our atoning sacrifice, but also our access to God. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.